0: Greetings. My name is Chris Hayden, and I'm the pastor of Care and Support here at Grace Chapel, and uh, it's a joy to be with you, if only virtually. As we continue with our journey uh, with the prophet Isaiah, I want you to know that I love Isaiah and all that he wrote, because he is the man, more than anyone else, who introduced me to Jesus. But before we tackle the idea of biblical prophecy, which means God speaking through some remarkable but unusual people, Thousands of years ago, with messages that are supposed to fashion, direct, and encourage the most important beliefs in our lives. Let me say this lots of people think we're nuts. Lots of people think we're nuts. Besides being a pastor for the past 40 years, I've also become a mental health counselor. And two years ago, I was in a small meeting, in a staff meeting uh, led by some colleagues making a presentation on schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and other serious mental illnesses. They cited an old and somewhat unkind joke that is well-known in secular psychology. It's, when you talk to God, it's called prayer. When God talks to you, it's called schizophrenia. Now, they cited some examples from popular culture, then literature, and then some illustrations from the Bible. Of famous people, they would deem mentally ill with the insinuation that they were crazy. And we're not supposed to use that word. Now, they noted Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the prophet Ezekiel's visions, the angel's annunciation to Mary, Saul, who became Paul, on the Damascus Road, and even Jesus and the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. The clinical director, who was a wise, no-nonsense Catholic woman, saw me sitting there smiling. And she said, you know, folks, there are some colleagues here with different perceptions of the Bible, including me and the Reverend Hayden sitting beside you. I suggest that you be more measured in in your statements. And about a dozen colleagues nodded in agreement, while others appeared quite shocked. Because to many, vague spirituality is okay, but real religious belief is a sign of mental illness or at least emotional dependence. Now, I don't blame some of those people who feel that way, because when you consider what crazy and terrible things people who claim to believe in God have said and done historically, and especially currently, is that any mystery in a culture that still treats mental illness, even mild depression and anxiety, with judgment, fear, and suspicion? Why don't you just get over it? Pray more, try harder, calm down, cheer up. Would you say the same thing to someone with cancer or a heart attack? Mental and emotional illness, like spiritual distress, is as real and in need of compassionate care as any other illness. I believe we're all in a spectrum of sane and crazy, broken and healing, sinful and saintly, lost and found in whatever else. So perhaps we could all be more sensitive and caring towards anyone in need or distress. That being said, there's lots of crazy in the Bible. The prophet Jeremiah, who ranted so furiously at the people of Israel that we coined the term Jeremiah to describe his angry tirades, also famously wrote in chapter 29 to the now captured people in Babylon. I know the plan I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. Now that same messenger of God wrote a poignant and painful description of clinical depression in Lamentations 3. Listen to this. I am the one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away and broken my bones. He has besieged me and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me, and though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. You should read the whole chapter, Lamentations 3. It gets much worse. But from that place of darkness and despair, out of his own wilderness, Jeremiah wrote some of the most profound words of hope in our faith. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We should write a hymn about that. And my life verse, given to me by my father at the death of my mother when I was a child. And this is from Lamentations 3, 32 and 33. Although he causes grief in the sense of allowing it to happen, He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Listen, for the Lord does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. My point is good news for all of us. God uses broken vessels, his children lost in the wilderness, to serve his purpose and bring his love to his people. God uses our wounds to create healing, our fear to form faith and our emptiness to become vessels of divine love, to pour these gifts out for his people. Now, more on that later. When I was a kid, uh, my pastor was a man I loved and looked up to, a short, bald, pudgy man with Coke bottle glasses and soft, sweaty hands who would never impress you with his athletic prowess. But when he got into the pulpit, he was a powerhouse a giant to me, a man whose love for Jesus and the word of God made it feel like Pastor Swanson was gone and one of the prophets was speaking to us. He told me of a God who loved me, whose name was Jesus. But more importantly, actually, he introduced me to a divinely crazy man named Isaiah. I have powerful memories Of Over the years of hearing him preach, so often from this prophet, he loved Isaiah too. Isaiah 6 in the temple, the year the King Uzziah died, trembling foundations and flying angels and fiery coals, and the voice of God crying out, Whom shall I send? And a small boy wanted to jump out of his pew and cry in return, Here I am, send me. I nearly wept every Christmas when he spoke of Isaiah 9, and the people who walked in darkness like the sadness in me, to whom had been born a son, God himself, God with us, a wonderful counselor, by the way, the Prince of Peace, the miracle of it captured my heart." New things springing forth in 42 to bruised reeds which he would not break, calling to all who are thirsty to come to the waters in 55, a rising and shining in 60, bringing good news to the poor in 61, and a life-changing call in chapter 58 to true worship, real religion, by doing justice and showing mercy, becoming repairers of streets for people to live in, Hear it, repairs of streets for people to live in. Who was this prophet? The man God chose to be the deliverer of divine things a human mind could not conceive. Well, let me tell you, I vividly recall a sermon sometime in those years that mentioned Isaiah 20, in which Isaiah feels called by God to become a living sign to Israel that Egypt and Assyria would be stripped naked for their enmity to God's people, as would Israel if they continued to be disobedient. To accomplish this, Isaiah was to strip naked and walk barefoot around the city of Ashdod for three years. Three years! A teenage boy was on the edge of his seat. But the preacher seemed like that was not unusual. And no one in that emotionally guarded Scandinavian congregation seemed to notice. And I'm thinking, did he say naked? Is this guy crazy? How can we trust the word of that guy? By the way, um, next week my wife and I will actually be visiting our daughter, Ali in Ashdod, Israel. I could walk where Isaiah walked, though actually I plan on shorts and sandals. But... Here's the challenge for every believer, because sometimes our faith is really hard to believe. Whether it's about Isaiah or the resurrection or the crazy things Jesus liked to say, like good news for the poor or actually loving your neighbor or even your enemies, it's either crazy stuff or the truest thing in human life, the divine, God with us. Now, in my high school years, I wandered away from God and this love of scripture. I had more important things to do to be for me, but God persistently seemed to put people in places into my life to call me back. Three friends and I from the Roxbury Latin School, we went on on local college tours to Harvard and Amherst and other schools, all beautiful campuses, impressive schools. But then we drove to rural Hanover, New Hampshire, and I found myself wandering around Dartmouth College clueless as to how to choose a school or what to do with my life i rounded a corner as confronted by the insignia of the college on a building and it read vox clamantis in deserto did i mention that i went to a latin school for 5 years 5 years of boring latin classes enabled me to recognize the prophet isaiah calling to me from chapter 40 vox clamantis in deserto means a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I knew then what I was supposed to do and where I was supposed to be. Now the next fall, I arrived at Dartmouth and promptly began a two-year major in sin and seeking my own way, and that was my path into the wilderness. The title of our sermon series, Promised Land, stands in stark contrast to the realities it seeks to address and redeem. Human existence, including our own culture, is not the experience of God's intended kingdom of love, mercy, justice, and compassion. The wilderness of our world reveals itself in poverty, injustice, domestic violence, gun violence, racism, immigration, international wars, and our own political infighting. Wherever people are not living for love and justice, and instead for their own way, their own wealth, their own power and popularity, Whenever greed is more important than grace, whenever depravity displaces duty and devotion, wherever creating fear and judgment of others for class or ethnicity, for gender, for orientation or whatever is a successful social agenda. But I'll let smarter people deal with that and I'll stick to what I know. Wilderness places in our lives are where we feel lost, alone, sinful, shameful. Hopeless, unworthy, broken, and bereft of God. We may choose our own way into the wilderness, as I did, or have it thrust upon us. A surprise diagnosis of illness, the death of someone we love, a divorce we didn't choose, the loss of a job, an unseen tra- unforeseen tragedy. And for all of us, this terrible season of pandemic, this arduous wasteland of loss, fear, sickness, and uncertainty. But the wilderness that is too often with us is our own brokenness. We all share it. We all know it. Some of us still try to deny it. Others know we can't. Isaiah spoke out loud a truth that no one could deny. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity iniquity of us all. Since the garden. That has been the quintessential definition of sin. Living our own way for our own needs and desires instead of following the loving, life-giving will of God. But in one phrase, Isaiah both reveals an unheard of miracle and condemns our sinful selfishness. And it's not some moralizing invective delivered with a wagging finger. But he said, oh, we like sheep have gone astray. A communal recognition of our broken human condition. It's all of us. A call to come back from the wilderness ways that are killing us and ruining every relationship that matters with God and each other, with our community, and those we don't know are truly our neighbors. Now, if we were in ancient Israel, the cure for this condition, the guarantee of forgiveness and a new beginning, was ritual sacrifice. Ancient Jews revered a righteous, holy God who would judge his people for their sinfulness, but who would forgive those whose repentance was genuine, proven by a life of obedience, devotion, and service to God through compassion to others. Now, being religious people, of course, the Jews, like every other religion, developed rituals to get around those fundamental divine commands. Sacrifices to God, copied from the religions of other cultures, were incorporated into their religious practices. Doves, oil, grain from the harvest were regularly sacrificed. Special atonement ceremonies often had a goat, a scapegoat, that's where the word comes from, which would be driven into the desert to die after the community had cast their sins upon it. Who needed to live a godly life if the goat took care of the problem? The only problem is that calls for a lot of goats. The most important services, like those that developed into Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, involved the sacrifice of an unblemished lamb upon the altar, its blood shed, its life taken, to absolve the people of their sins and restore their relationship with God. A lamb leading sheep who had gone astray, back to God, is wonderful imagery. But we know how well that worked out. And once again, you need a lot of lamb. So enter Isaiah, the potentially crazy mouthpiece of God, who offers an unthinkable theological development, a revelation unheard of in rabbinical teaching. The servant of God, meaning the Messiah, the same Son, Almighty God, born to us in Isaiah 9, would become the necessary sacrifice for human sin to God's holiness. He would willingly choose, out of love for God and His people, to offer his life as a vicarious sacrifice, to redeem our lives before God. A man, not a lamb, but the Lamb of God would become the perfect sacrifice, spotless in the eyes of God. He would take on the sin of the world and defeat it, ransom it, redeem it, and cure the brokenness of his people. He would live among us, experiencing our suffering, becoming acquainted with our grief and loss, our shame and pain, and transform them within himself. He would forgive our sin and destroy its power to ruin us and our relationship with God. He would come and find us in our wilderness, embrace us in our brokenness, suffer for our sake, and love us into a new life with God and each other. Then, with his suffering and death, He would become the healing that not only restores us to life, but resurrects us to new life, that new thing in Isaiah 42, a new purpose, a new future, yet untold. This extraordinary text in Isaiah does not claim to explain the source or nature of sin and evil and suffering in the world, but instead reveals the cure that God has created for our human condition. The question of why we suffer loss, illness, injustice, addiction, and all the rest is one of the ultimate human questions of our meaning in life, our ability to trust in a God who cares for us and to believe that anything is of, is of enough value to live for. Though Isaiah does not answer all those questions, this text reveals that human suffering cannot be God punishing us for sin if God is the one who sends his servant to suffer for our sin and for our new life. John's gospel encapsulates this heart of the gospel in 3.16. For God so loved the world, which means in Greek, loved the world in this way, that he sent his only beloved son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The verses that follow speak of Jesus as the light that has come into the world but the people love darkness instead and would not come to the light, just like sheep who wander away into our own desires, sins, fears, hurts, addictions, and the rest, until our brokenness becomes our wilderness. If our brokenness is the place where we feel God-forsaken, unlovable, fearful of being found because we are guilty and ashamed, Why do we too often choose to keep hiding in that darkness instead of embracing Christ's invitation to come into his light, to be found and welcomed, loved as we are, then forgiven, understood in our grief, cleansed of our sins, relieved of our burdens, comforted in our pain, healed in our hurts, and free to live a new life with God and for God? Is it because our faith seems too good to be true? That this undeserved grace of God is ours, yours, and mine for the asking? Either the naked guy is the messenger of God, or he's nuts and I can't trust him. And I didn't until he introduced me to Jesus. I was a lonely kid longing for love. I wore hand-me-downs that made me feel like I never fit in. As a teenager, I was desperate to prove myself worthy of attention and acceptance, but I could never tell anyone how badly I felt inside for fear that they would laugh at me, reject me as weak. So I became strong, I got big, and I pretended that I didn't need anybody. I grew up in a loving church family and those kind people became my home, but they taught me about a nice Jesus who promised a good life with lots of love and joy if we would just behave. That's the almighty God of Sunday school. When I was 13, I offered my heart to Jesus at summer camp because I wanted that sweet deal, even though I knew it wasn't for me. After two years in college of learning how to be a prodigal son, I came back to Jesus on my knees, and I felt led to read Isaiah 53, among other things. There I met the God of Isaiah, the suffering servant, the God who knows my suffering, and is acquainted with my grief. That is the God I could love. Not the happy Jesus of Sunday school, but the king of the universe to whom, as in Philippians 2, I would bend my knee to confess him Lord, only to find him on the floor with me, ready to wash my feet and call me his own. That is the man I fell in love with, the one who would suffer for me, with me, the one who knows all my guilt and shame, all my fears and failures, the one who would take my sin into himself, my punishment upon himself and redeem it and me for a life that just might serve God, his people and his purpose. I don't just believe in Jesus. I love him. I trust him. I want to serve him out of glad obedience, willing sacrifice for others that I might share the love, the grace I have been given. Now, A brief aside as I was writing this. If you're a mean Christian, you're missing the point. And God knows I've been there. I so needed to be right about everything. But if we're mean about our politics or our doctrines, if we're mean about our social issues or people who are different, then we've missed a point of grace, of intimate, infinite, unconditional love for broken people like us. In Celebrate Recovery, we teach that we are all broken but beloved. We are beloved, but still broken. There's a freedom in confessing that together with other sisters and brothers, and then we're not so alone, and it's in confessing that freely together to each other that we learn to be gracious to others. But in Mark 10, for instance, James and John, disciples of Jesus, wanted power in the kingdom the way they had learned to want it in the world. Their way, not God's way. And that brokenness would lead to their wilderness. So Jesus asked whether they were able and willing, because true service to God must always be willing sacrifice, not fear of punishment. He asked whether they were willing to drink the cup and be baptized as he must do. Now, he was asking whether they were willing to sacrifice themselves for God's purpose, to suffer, to give up anything, needs, Ego, ambition, even their lives for God's people and God's purpose. But I never read that passage until Isaiah taught me how. Jesus explains his radical call to sacrificial love by saying, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, a ransom for many. Jesus was in that moment revealing himself to be the suffering servant Isaiah had foretold. That's the Lord I would follow. And so the question confronts us. If God has entered into our wilderness of brokenness, sin, and suffering, and offered himself as our deliverance, the promise of forgiveness, healing, redeeming, and resurrection to new life, If he has offered us gracious love, we can barely believe because it seems miraculous enough to be crazy. Then what does God desire of us in our new life? How would we respond if God asked, whom shall I send? But wait, Pastor Chris, I hear you cry. Why all this focus on the promises of God seeming too crazy to be true? Because there's a world of hurting people out there who just can't believe that there is any good news in the midst of their hurting and brokenness. And the words of a twenty-seven year old, 2,700-year-old prophet are not going to change that. But I can. You can. Every one of us who has embraced the grace of God shown to us in the suffering and joy of Jesus can be a living sign like Isaiah. Proof of God's love present in someone else's life. That's a miracle people are dying to believe. One of my best friends in life, Kelly, died of cancer more than 10 years ago. She was like a sister to me and one of the most kindest and most loveliest genuine Christians I have ever known. When her breast cancer returned as metastatic bone cancer, she knew she had little time to live. Her greatest grief was that she would be leaving her three wonderful devoted teenage daughters, and her husband, a friend and pastoral colleague of mine. Twice a week, I would go to the hospital while she received a four-hour chemotherapy treatment. We would talk for hours, read scripture, pray, and very often weep for the grief, the fear, the tragedy, and the questions. On one occasion, I walked in and saw Kelly with her wheelchair sidled up to another woman's wheelchair. They were both in head scars because their hair was gone. And the other woman was sobbing, wailing, really, in fear and distress. Kelly was holding her hand, and I sat and watched and waited. Twenty minutes later, Kelly and this woman were hugging and laughing, tears still streaming, but hope given, love shared, life made new, even in the valley of the shadow of death. Servants of God are called to do what the true servant did for us. He entered into our brokenness, hopelessness, fear, suffering, and even sin, and to be present with people in their pain and need, to offer healing out of our own wounds, faith from our own fears, love from the place we thought we couldn't be loved, freedom from the chains that once held us all, and the promise to us that the suffering servant, our Savior, our God, will be with us. Jesus living his life through ours. Loving his people as we offer ourselves. ourselves, Such love turns wilderness into promised land. In Jesus' name. Before I pray, I'd like to leave you with a brief lesson. I'd like to teach you how to pronounce uh, Isaiah 40 in Latin. Because when you learn something in a different language, you never forget it in your own. Vox Clamantis in deserto. If you're an insufferable Latin purist like me, you know that V's are pronounced W's in Latin, but that's too confusing for folks. So we're gonna go Italian Latin, and please repeat after me. Vox Clamantis in deserto. Vox Clamantis in deserto. It's your voice in your wilderness crying out for God. It's Jesus' voice in your wilderness calling for you to come to God and life made new. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, our God, the one we love and seek to serve, we praise you for the love that has entered into our sinfulness, our grief, our hurt, our pain, and made us new people, given us healing and hope for a new future. Charge us, O God, with the call of grace to go into the lives of people in need, in distress, in pain, people who have no hope. Help us to be vessels of love and new life that you have given us to share in Jesus' name, amen.